Welcome in listeners to an incredibly special Whisper in the Wings. We have, we're very honored to have this guest with us today. Joining us is the writer and performer, Douglas McGrath, who is the star of the show, Everything's Fine, which is currently playing at DR2, uh, which is at the Daryl Roth Theater. Uh, It's currently playing now through December 18th. It is a phenomenal evening of storytelling. You do not want to miss this. And we are just honored to have you, Douglas. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome to Whisper in the Wings. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I had the fortune, the great fortune to see your show uh, last week. And I was, I was so just captivated by it all. I mean, from the word go, when you, like we had spoken earlier and you mentioned Midland, Texas, small town. And I was like, let me lean in a little bit because I've done this. And then everything else that went, I mean, 90 minutes, I won't believe it. Cause I felt like I blinked and we were done. You know, <laughs> not me. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your show? You know, it's a memoir. I'm going to be a, a little careful because I don't, it has a lot of surprises in it, as you know, and yeah. I, I don't want to give away the surprises, but it, it is a memoir of my youth in Midland, Texas, which is a, a, a city in the in the base of the panhandle in West Texas. Our, our sister city is Odessa, Texas. Odessa being where Friday Night Lights was originally uh, set. And we are we are way out on the prairie out there, and uh, so it's a memoir of what it was like growing up at age fourteen in Midland. It's a lot about my parents, uh, who were not Texans; they were Easterners who moved there to be in the oil business. My mother had been working at Harper's Bazaar magazine for Diana Vreeland. She was pals with Andy Warhol. She led a very sophisticated life here, and and then she met my father, who was an Easterner, a Princeton graduate who'd gone to be in the oil business out there. And so they made their life there. And so it's a lot about them, but it's particularly about something that happened when we got a new history teacher in eighth grade. And she took an interest in me and she took too much of an interest in me. Now, that's all I'm going to really say, except to say this, whatever you think that means, it's not what you think it means. No matter what you think it means, you can't possibly guess what it actually turns out to be. It is a series of, of shocking things. I'll just tell you how John Lithgow, who directed the play, John describes the play like this. He said, it starts out as a warmly nostalgic, good-humored uh, piece of storytelling. And slowly but surely, it turns into a psychological thriller. Oh, that's brilliantly put. I literally, as, I, as you were um, describing the show, all I can think is, yeah, but there's so much more. Yeah, but there's so much more. Oh my gosh, but then there's this. And I'm I'm being tight, so tight-lipped about it because there's so many twists and turns. And then there's these little like offsprings of, of stories that you drop in there too that I'm like, oh, but what about this? And what about that? Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, it's it's layer it's, after layer of excitement. It's a, it really is to use an old cliche, but it is a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. Play. Because it's it's it starts out very um, amusingly. My parents are were witty, funny people. I have funny stories about them. But then this teacher enters the picture, and she presents uh, as normal. In fact, as normal and quite appealing. A little younger and different from our other teachers, and and kind of hipper than the other teachers. But then slowly but surely. You know, just layer after layer comes off, and you see a very desperate 
um, person underneath that yeah. mask. And, and she takes several desperate steps. Yeah. So how did you come up with the idea to uh, write this show? I mean, I, I'd say, how did you come up with this show? But this is your story. How did you come up with the idea to, to finally write it? You know, it's a very good question. I for a long, I wanted to tell the story for a long time, but couldn't figure out what the right form for it was. I originally thought maybe I could make a novel out of it or a short, a long piece of short fiction, but I didn't have the skill for that. And I tried it too early in my life. I started working on this in my 20s when I was closer to the events and I needed the distance. But it was the pandemic, the dear old pandemic uh, <laughs> that got me thinking about it again. And part of what the pandemic did was it gave me a, a layer of uh, sympathy for her after all these years, because in, when the pandemic first started, we all became aware that we had to look out for friends of ours who were lonely, meaning, you know, we couldn't go out for those first months. Everybody was huddled at home. And it made me think of her, this teacher. And she and, and I realized she must have been a very lonely person to have behaved the way she did. And as I started thinking about it, I thought, I think the best way for me to tell this story is for me to tell this story. And, and I love that kind of uh, oral storytelling. So I just started telling it out loud here in my office and I would get a chunk down and then I would video it for myself then I'd write it and then I'd type, you know, so back and forth, but always from, from an oral perspective. That's fantastic. I and see one of the the one of the few positive things that come from the pandemic where we had time, we were able to like reflect and go, okay, I've got time for that project that I've been putting off, you know. <laughs> well, you're right. And you know, it's funny though, too, because as I worked on it, one of the things I really looked forward to was being able to look directly at the audience. You know, it could easily be a play, it could easily be a film, because the drama in it would support that. And yet did you see Dana H by any chance? I did, yes. Okay, so Dana H I thought was so great. And part of what made it great was that, you know, the, that the actress was mouthing the actual words of the woman to whom this all happened. At first I thought, when I heard the idea, I thought, well, that's the dumbest idea I've heard. Um, it just seemed insane to me. And yet the minute it started, I thought this is the greatest idea in the world. And it was done so beautifully. And part of what you got out of it was in hearing the actual woman's voice. You thought, oh, my God, that is the voice of the woman to whom these horrible events happened. And it, in the case of my show, it's the same thing. As the, as the drama becomes more dramatic and scarier and wilder, one of the things the audience knows is that I'm really the person to whom this happened. I'm the person who made the insanely dumb decisions I did. I'm the person who was received all this unwanted attention and um, uh, trouble. And I think that gives it an element, an extra element of interest. I couldn't agree more with that. So you mentioned um, working with John Lithgow mm -hmm. um, as your director. What was it like developing the show, putting it on its feet? We, you know, John does, has an apartment here, but largely lives in LA. So one, um, I had finished an early draft of the script and I sent it to my theater guardian angel, Andre Bishop, who runs Lincoln Center Theater and is an old friend. And I asked him for dramaturgical advice and also suggestions for a director. And he only suggested one director, John, John Lithgow. He said, I know you think he's an actor, but he's a wonderful director. And I think you two would be great together. And 
we have been. It's been a wonderful partnership. But uh, in the early months, I would just, he would give me notes on the script and I would make changes and email them back and forth to him in LA. Uh, and then we, we went in and um, put things on it, on, our, on its feet. We did a workshop production of it in last spring and the response was very uh, encouraging. People seemed to really like it. So then we just plunged in and he, it was actually John who found us, our, our two producers, Tom Warner and Daryl Roth. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, he just loves the piece. He's he's just behind it 100%. It's so wonderful. Oh, that's so great. And, you know, you really can see where his fingerprints are on the show. You can see that. It wasn't Yo. just like a, oh, okay, this is a side project. You can see that he's really dove oh. in and he's putting these touches in. It, it's, it is a fully developed piece, top yeah. to bottom. You're not just standing there being like, here's my story. The the incorporation of all of the set and everything, the way you move things around in that, it everything has purpose. Everything. That's all. That's all, John. All John. And every day he would come in and say, "Wait, I want to change what we're doing with that chair. I want to change what we're doing. So I have a new idea for this." Always just bubbling with enthusiasm. So, what is the message or thought that you're hoping that audiences will leave with? Well, I think what I would like people to take away from this is that. A couple of things. One of the things I did wrong, it's a show all about how I did everything wrong <laughs> when this teacher became overly interested in me. One of the things I did wrong was I didn't tell anybody about it. I had this sense that if I told my parents or the school that somehow it would be my fault, I just I, I just kept it to myself, except for my friend Eddie, whom I eventually <laughs> confided in. But <laughs> he wasn't a lot of help. So uh, what I really hope people will do is and I've had friends of mine who brought their kids, you know, like teenage kids to the show. And they've used the show as a way to discuss with their kids. If you ever find yourself in any kind of trouble, come to us or come to somebody, come to an expert, to a, a shrink, a teacher, or somebody who can help, but don't keep it, don't keep it locked up. That's one thing I hope. And then the other thing I hope, and, and my situation is very different from like the woman you were describing before who was, who was sexually assaulted, which is much, much, more serious than what happened to me. But one of the things that um, people have talked to me about after the show is that I tried to find a, a way to think about the teacher so that I could forgive what she had done. Um, and and there's some, a lot of people come up to me afterwards and say, they think I've been too nice to her at the end. They, they feel like I, I shouldn't forgive her. But I, I don't, I don't want to, first, I don't want to see a show about a, a an old man still mad about something that happened 50 years ago. And also I, I, I do forgive her. I, I, I look back and I think she must've been a very lonely person um, when, when this happened. And although it was um, not right what she did, um, I can see how she did it. And sometimes if you can look and see how someone, how or why someone did something, it allows you to find that space for forgiveness. I'm encouraging, no, you know, I'm, uh, believe me, I'm only speaking in my case and other people have much harder things to yeah. forgive than I do. Um, because mine, she was a great nuisance, but it, it wasn't a, a trauma the way, you know, actual physical abuse can be. And also, you know, as, as you know, my, I also tell some stories about my father who had a, a terrible uh, crisis in business. And he himself, just like my teacher had, he carried his troubles all alone. And, it, and it's a terrible burden to ourselves to do that. Um, 
by, by sharing them, we reduce the, the burden of them. Um, but, you know, he was raised to believe, you know, you're meant to solve your own problems and you're not meant to complain and you're, but it was, it, it came at a great cost to him. Yeah. So that's the other thing I encourage people to do this. Well, my final question for this first half of the uh, interview, I'd like to know who do you hope have access to your show? You know, what's been very surprising and very nice uh, is that there have been uh, a lot of young people at the show. Given mm. that I'm 64, I thought the audience would look a lot like me or worse, inconceivably. <laughs> um, but, um, and there have been a lot of young people at the show. And what I forgot, of course, is that the show is about a 14-year-old. So, um, so there's a lot in it for young people. I'm really hoping that, that both audiences come because it's, you know, it speaks to anybody from 14 up anybody. Cause it's a lot about, as you know, it's a coming of age story. Um, and, um, and a lot of those kids are interested, you know, cause they, a lot of them have similar things happening to them or possibly in their, you know, um, in their universe they're hearing about. So uh, it's easily relatable. audience a chance to get to know you a little bit more um you have a very storied career in the theater uh among other places um but i'd like to start by asking you what shows playwrights or composers have inspired you in the past or are some of your favorites as well my favorite play in the world is our town i just love our town i think it's the great masterpiece of the american theater I mean, and there are other great masterpieces in the American theater, but that just kills me. That play is so great because it has humor and charm. And yet, step by step, minute by minute, it gets darker and darker and darker. Um, you know, people always think of our town as like um, picture postcard, cheery, small town loveliness. It's so, it starts that way, but that's not how it ends up. Yeah. And that David Cromer production, I've seen many productions, but the production he did down, at, I think, at the Barrow Street Theater was just breathtaking. But it's kind of almost always great because it's such a great play. So that's that would be my that's my favorite. I I think I've read it once. I've yet to see a production, which shame on me. But as soon as the next time someone in the area does it, I'm I'm jumping. IV. Yes, you want to yeah. get there. That's great. It's just great. Have you seen any theater lately that you might recommend to our listeners? I know you've been busy with this show, but that's the problem. But I, I, the, 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 the piece I saw in the last couple of years, once we started tiptoeing back into the theater from uh, uh, the pandemic, the first thing we saw was Dana H. Uh, and that was just amazing. But since I've been doing this, I can't. Although, I'm, you know, there's a lot that's out there that, that I'm very curious to see. Um, it's, it seems like a good season for plays. It's, it is, uh, the theater is back. 
and 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 the the quality and the stories being told including i mean including what you you're doing you know it's the richness and the fullness that exists i i never in my 20 years being in the city i've never experienced it it's just incredible so <laughs> oh i can't wait as well for the spring this is the fall i'm like okay what's the spring got <laughs> <laughs> What is your favorite part about working in the theater? My, oh, that's so good. Uh, my favorite part, I guess, is, well, it's the audience. I mean, it really is the audience because, I mean, now I'm, I'm on stage looking directly at the audience while I tell my story. So that's a thrill in its own way. But as a playwright, it's always great, too, to be in the back of the house and see how different audiences react to the same material that's up every night. Um, I just love that feeling it being, and it's a different feeling than, than in a movie theater. It's a different feeling than elsewhere. There's just something about it, uh, that is so great because you know that, it, you know, the movie, you go to a movie, that's the same movie five times a day, but there's something different in every production, in every performance of something. And in my show now, sometimes people call out, I don't know if they did it the day you were there. But sometimes they get so nervous during the creepy teacher part of my story that sometimes people will actually shout things out like in a horror movie. So twice, here are two things that happened. Once, uh, as you know, there's a period when the teacher starts writing me notes, lots of notes. And I take them out of this box that's on a desk. And at a certain point, she and I, have, she stopped writing me the notes and we're barely speaking to each other. And then I tell the audience, I say, you know, because I was so hostile to her, she gave up trying to speak to me, but she did not give up trying to reach me. And then I turn and I look at the box from which I've been taking out the blue notes. And one woman in the front row realized, uh-oh, and she went right like this. Oh no, the notes, out loud, like that. <laughs> Everybody burst out laughing. I had to, I said, yep, the notes. And you know, that can't, that's, that's just the beauty of live theater. Yeah. Um, another woman, when I made a reference, it was a, it was a metaphor. I wasn't saying that the teacher was pregnant, but I said that the situation was pregnant with peril. But as soon as I said the word pregnant, the woman in her seat, right out loud, pregnant, just big loud. <laughs> I said, no, not that kind of pregnant. <laughs> and so I actually talked about it with her and I said, we have a limit here. <laughs> um, so, and that's great because, you know, that, that wasn't in the show before or after. It's just that immediacy of the audience that's so great. Yeah, I, I I have to admit I wasn't one as vocal, but I'm in the back with my mask on, leaning forward. And as you were going through the midpoint, and I just remember it was when I'm not going to mention, but when something was accelerating, the frequency of something was accelerating, mm -hmm. and I just remember going, "Oh no!" Like in the back, <laughs> there was no one around me, but the usher could hear me. I just heard him giggling, and I was like, I, "Look, you've seen this show like eight times." <laughs> But I was like, oh, no, like, when will this end? This poor guy. <laughs> so I understand. We, we get that a lot. I, I, I'm with those ladies. Well, not so much the pregnant lady. Like, I caught the, <laughs> I caught the great writing on that one, the poetic writing. But <laughs> I love that she picked that word out of it all. <laughs> well, we've come to my favorite question, and I'm very excited to be asking you uh, this question. Um, which is, what is your favorite theater memory? 
Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, I think it's, I think it's this. I have so many, so it's hard to, to, to choose. <laughs> but uh, as you may know, I wrote the book for Beautiful, the Carol King musical. Yeah. And often I would be at the theater watching, and I'm, I'm horrible to be next to uh, when I'm watching the show because if people don't laugh at a joke that I think is funny, I'm like, yeah, what's your problem? Well, let's get a little actor going over here. Um, so let's, you have a better joke. So <laughs> I had to learn to keep quiet to myself. And one matinee, uh, there was, I was at the, in, you know, in the back of the house and quite near me on the aisle, I mean, in the aisle was uh, a young woman in a wheelchair and she seemed almost paralyzed. She, she barely moved at all. Uh, no laughing, no anything. And yet when the music would start for any song, she appeared to, to just almost melt. It was so beautiful. Her limbs and everything, which had been so stiff, became softer and moved a little and she rocked back and forth in the chair and this beautiful smile came over her face. Mm. And it just killed me. I, I wrote Carol, I wrote the other songwriters that night to tell them how deeply that music had affected this woman and how her reaction had affected me. And what a, what a great power to have um, you know, the, to have that ability to move someone um, like that was very, very touching to me. I think I'll always uh, cherish that memory. What a wonderful memory. What what power that, uh, mm, oh, that just warned me all over. And that wasn't even my memory, you know, like, oh, the <laughs> Well, power. it's funny because the, the instant the song would end, it would end and my boring dialogue would come on, she'd go right back to being still. But then the next song, uh, same thing, just melts. Just wonderful. So are there any other productions or projects that you have coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug? Um, no, I am working on something, um, but it's just too, I just get superstitious if I say something too early. Um, so and to be honest, also at the moment, I find uh, I'm in a coma of exhaustion all day until I go back to the show. <laughs> then <laughs> my panic sets in and I do the show. But I have found this uh, joyful but tiring. I, you know, I think now that we're up and really running and not run, uh, rehearsing during the day and everything's set, uh, my days will be more normal again and I can start to think about other things. But nothing I can um, uh, tell you about yet. Well, if our listeners want more information about the show, Everything's Fine, or about you, or they'd like to reach out to you, how can they do that? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, meaning the, the Everything's Fine Play, uh, which is our website, uh, has all the um, information about the show. And, and that's, I think that's kind of the best place for everything. This has been just incredible to just speak with you, uh, Douglas. This is, I'm, I'm over the moon. Um, it's I been really, such a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure, Andrew. You're such a delightful host and leader of the conversation. It really was very uh, delightful. Thank you. My guest today has been Douglas McGrath, who is the writer and performer of the show Everything's Fine, which is playing at DR2, which is at the Daryl Roth Theater at 101 East 15th Street. It's currently playing now through December 18th, and you can get tickets and more information at everythingsfineplay.com or at telecharge.com. 
So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez, reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by The Joy Drops and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.